You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 119th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm so excited to interview my friend and colleague, Regina Fike. Regina is a gifted and inspirational speaker who has shared her passion for choice theory and resilient families all over the world. Regina and her husband are parents to eight children, grandparents to 16, and have fostered medically fragile children for 15 years. Her expertise, coupled with her fun and engaging style, have made her a popular speaker at state, national, and international conferences. Regina currently works with Presley Ridge as a parent educator in Pennsylvania. Welcome, Regina, and thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your multitude of parenting experiences. It is a joy to be with you. Let's start with, I don't know if it's exactly the beginning, but I know one of the things that truly impressed me about you when we met was that didn't you marry your childhood sweetheart and you're still married and actually still like each other? (laughs) We do. And yes, most of that is true. I will say that he was not childhood sweetheart makes it sound like we knew each other for a long time. And the truth is that we met when I was 16 and he was 20 and we met in April and we married in July. You were 16 when you married your husband. I had barely creeped in under the wire and had my 17th birthday before the wedding. We were technically 17 and 21, and that was 41 years ago. And he is still the greatest and most profound and most stabilizing relationship in my life. That is just incredible to me because I know people certainly who married young and who divorced after a brief period of time. I also know people who married young and are still together, but aren't always happy with each other. They're kind of tolerating, putting up with thinking, you know, is this as good as it gets? And they're just living one day at a time. But you and Rick, I know because I've spent time with you, you truly enjoy each other's company and it feels like you have each other's back, which is something that you don't always see. I just wanted to start there. And then because we're going to be talking about parenting, how old were you when you had your first baby? 10 months after the wedding. wedding. Yes. Oh oh my goodness. So you weren't even 18 yet, were you? No, I wasn't. And my, I think my grandmother wanted to take out an ad in the local paper that said uh, she was not pregnant. See, I told you. And I was. <laughs> but yes, we got pregnant almost immediately and had our first child in May of the following year. Wow, Regina. And how many kids have you had? We have eight children. Five of them were born to us. Three of them found their way home through adoption. And we have fostered about 20 parented about 20 kids through the course of our time together. And the three that you adopted, did they begin as foster children? They did. My husband and I, actually, when we started, we had five children and my husband was a cable man. So we were not the typical profile for people who wanted to foster to adopt. We became foster parents because I had a good friend who was fostering very medically fragile children and we became licensed so that we could offer her respite from time to time. 
And it wasn't long after we went down that road that we started to feel compelled to that this was a service our family was supposed to be doing. And at that point, took our own foster child, and that was the beginning of a long time as foster parents, but then a career eventually in social work. And I've been working in preservation and stabilization of families for the last 30 years. That is quite a profession, I know, because I worked 17 years in the foster care system and finding committed, loving, adoptive, or just foster parents for that matter is a challenge. It's truly a challenge. There are some people, of course, we all know who get into foster parenting because they get some money for each child. I don't think that's a good reason because you never get enough money to cover their expenses. And then there are others who get into foster parenting because they love kids and they want to help, but they get frustrated when their children act out and don't show deep appreciation for their sacrifice to take in this child. And I don't think you suffered from that particular problem. Can you tell me a little bit about your foster care journey? I can. And what I will say is I think there's a third category. And this falls into our choice theory kind of thinking. But I often talk to foster families or people who are prospective foster and adoptive families about the 51-49 split. And that basically is talking about the fact that we come to this work of fostering for all kinds of reasons, a great variety of reasons. Sometimes it may be because we have been unable to have children. Sometimes it is purely motivated by service. Sometimes it's because we feel a religious calling to do so. Whatever it is, we are seeking to meet some need for ourselves in the service of someone else. And I think every foster parent who has this journey has, I want to say, many more than one moment of time, more than one questioning moment where you say, am I doing this in the service of someone else or is the split falling towards meeting my own needs? And on any given day and at any given moment, I might be trying to meet my own needs more than I'm trying to meet the needs of a child. And I think the journey has been being able to gain perspective of that and say, what's the child's need? What's my need? How do I get us both what we need in the moment? That's my both and approach. I'm your girl that always wants not to give up anything, <laughs> figure out how can they both work. I love that we're not even five minutes into this interview and you already brought up choice theory. We were trying to figure out before this podcast how many years we've known each other. We decided it has to be at least 16 years and it might be even longer. The way we keep track is because we had a young lady in our training who said that she wanted to have a child. And within a year, she had that child. And we think that child just turned 16. So it may be 17 years. I don't know. But we've known each other a long time, which means you took your choice theory training a while ago. How has that choice theory training influenced your parenting? Walt Whitman famously made the statement that you should consider everything you've been told and then dismiss what insults your soul. And I love that. I stand on that premise. I love that idea. And I talk about that with the parents that I work with. Men don't create truth. Truth exists. And occasionally we're fortunate enough to identify it and see it and recognize it. Dr. Glasser, in my view, identified some profound truths about the way we interact as human beings and about what our journey means for ourselves and others as we travel in this place of mortality. When I took my basic intensive with you, Kim, I was required to do so. It was something my agency made me do. 
a week-long training. And the idea that I had to take a week-long training, I was mandated to take a week-long training to talk about my free agency was a little amusing. I didn't come in with an open mind about what I was going to learn. And I'm pretty fixed in some of my thinking. My core beliefs are firmly held. It was a wonderful event to hear things being spoken that resonated with my spirit, and I could draw them easily and profoundly into the way I work with my children. What you'll hear me say often if we get telling some stories, my children have learned the model very well. They know that it's the end of a conversation if we say to them, what is it you really want? Is what you're doing getting it for you? Would you be willing to consider another way? There's a hard eye roll and there's a, a um, profound frustration with me from time to time. But as my children have crossed the threshold into adulthood, that model has served them in ways that have just been miraculous for me to watch as they become parents themselves. I wonder if you could tell the story. I don't know if you remember it, but back in the day, soon after you got home from the training, you had an interesting encounter with your son who was wearing baggy pants at the time. And I I believe that his underwear was showing. Do you remember that? I do remember that. In fact, this story is the stuff of family lore. Now, it, it is It is woven into the fabric of the family tales around here. And this son who is now, he just turned 40 and he cringes with a smile, but he cringes every time I tell this story because it has become larger than life. Back when he was in middle school, there was a trend to sag your pants. He had his very first wallet and that wallet was secured to his pants with a chain I'm not sure why, because the only thing in the wallet was a lunch ticket. So I don't know that he was at risk of theft. But the bus stop was about a half block from our house. And we noticed that Justin would leave our home appropriately attired. You know, Sands chain would have been better for me, but he looked respectable when he left the house. But by the time he made the bus stop, those pants were sagging in what he thought was a very cool way. We had several discussions about why his clothing needed to stay appropriately where it belonged. And every time he would commit that he would wear them properly, and every time he would walk to the bus stop and just assume that we didn't know that he was sagging his pants. He came home from school one day, and I had all of our children, uh, remember we had eight, I had everybody else loaded up in the van and said, go get in the van, we're going to go for groceries, I have to run inside and get my wallet. I ran inside and I put my bra on the outside of my green turtleneck shirt. And I walked slowly out to the car off the porch, did a few laps around the porch, then off onto the sidewalk and around the van a few times. My middle schooler was crouching in the backseat and just proclaiming, I have friends in this town. And they said, well, you know, I have friends in this town, and it seems to me that my friends don't want to see your underwear, and you seem to think your friends don't want to see my underwear, so perhaps we can negotiate a truce. I will say about Justin that being my firstborn, and as I mentioned, I was a very young mother, we sort of grew up together. There was great provenance in the fact that Justin has a raging sense of his free agency. And every time I tell this story, I reflect on the fact that it would have been in his character to say, fine. Let's go to Walmart. Just wear your bra outside your shirt if you want to. (laughs) I'm grateful every day that he didn't do that because I'm not sure I'd have had the nerve to follow through. That event was an instructive moment for both of us. And it has been the fodder for a lot of good conversation as Justin became a parent himself. I just love that story. It has such a creative flair to it. I've never heard of anyone doing something like that. 
to impact the decision that a child would make. It was wonderful and it worked really well. Thanks for sharing that. Now, I know we have talked right before we got on this call and you were talking about an early childhood experience that you had with your father that perhaps has followed you in certain ways into your adulthood and your own parenting. Can you tell the audience about that? I would like to share that story. Yes. One of the things that strikes me as very clear and profound as I've come into the middle age of my parenting is that the transition between childhood and parenthood, much of our experience follows us forward. And we frame the way we see and perceive others and the world around us based on those experiences. A quick story that I will share about my dad is that I didn't meet my father until I was 40. My parents met in the early 1960s, spring of 1963. My mother, who was a creative, remarkably independent soul, just went through the world with her elbows out, kind of creating a path for herself. She owned a yellow T-Bird convertible and a beauty shop in a small town in Western Pennsylvania. And she decided she was going to close down the shop for a week and she was going to drive to Graceland because she wanted to see where Elvis lived. She undertook that road trip in her yellow T-Bird all by herself. While she was at a diner during that trip, she met a young naval officer who was on leave from San Diego, California, and headed back to New Jersey where his family was at. They spent the day at that diner developing a fast friendship that became a long-distance relationship. Later in 1963, my father asked my mom, he said, I'm being deployed to Vietnam, and I'd like to have you come and spend my three weeks of leave time with me here in San Diego. And so he put her on a plane, and she went to San Diego and spent three weeks with him there. She came back from that trip with a beautiful diamond engagement ring and pregnant with me. If you think about the time and the context of that, being in the early 1960s, being a woman who was known in the community, owned a small business, it was a scarlet letter to be pregnant and unmarried during that time. And I love this about my mother, that she was resolved that my life and my happiness, the world's opinion of it had no bearing on it as far as she was concerned. So that's the first landmark and the first lesson in all of that for me. My father did go off to Vietnam and he was there until my mother received a message from him at Christmas time. It was a letter and that letter contained a picture of his wife and his son. He had not disclosed that he was married or that he had a child. Essentially, he had gotten to Vietnam and had a come-to-Jesus moment in that very violent and difficult environment. He wanted to come clean about what was going on in his life and tell my mother that if he survived, he needed to try to make things right for everyone. My mother was fiercely independent. She was furious with him. And she said, basically, you don't get to buy up your conscience with a check. So you choose them or you choose us, but you can't have both. He chose them. And so I was raised by a single parent and loving grandparents and never wanted for love and compassionate parenting. And I was surrounded by good people who cared very much about me, but I had the absence of my father in my life. And when it fast forward 40 years, uh, my children grew up knowing what that did to me in the context of watching my husband parent my children was a new experience for me. I had never seen what that paternal relationship looked like up close and personal. And I will share with some remorse that I had moments of jealousy watching that relationship evolve. That was difficult. So my children were very aware of that. My mom gave me a call one day when I was at work. She's at this point retired and she did family research, family genealogy and family history as a hobby. She called me one day at work and said, I did a public record search for Harry through that. And I think I have a good phone number. Would you like to talk to him? 
And I came home that night and I did what women with eight children do. I locked myself in a bathroom so I could have a phone conversation. And I spent two hours on the phone with a voice that sounded very familiar to me. And it was a profound moment. I learned many, many things about myself that I didn't know. I learned that I had siblings. I had half siblings. I learned that my father was a retired police officer in Daytona Beach, Florida, that he had thought about me often. It was a, it was just a breathtaking conversation. 13 hours after I hung up the phone, my father arrived at my house here in central Pennsylvania. He got in his car and he drove here. Wow. Yeah. I tell the story and people say, oh, it's like a Lifetime movie. And I often think parts of it are a little more like a Jerry Springer show. I don't know that it's a Lifetime movie, but there he was, larger than life, on my front porch. Did you know he was coming or did he surprise you? No, he told us that he would like to come and meet me. I didn't know he was doing that immediately. So we (laughs) gave him an address and he gave us a heads up when he was about an hour out. So we had that much of a lead time. Wow. I got to go back to the pants sagger just a minute and and remind you that Justin was my child with a raging sense of this free agency. I came to know later that that first night that I met my father, Justin actually met him on the porch and kind of wagged a finger in his face and said, you're here on approval. If you make my mother cry, I'll haul your ass to the curb. At that point, none of the boys in my family are faint little guys. We're all, they're all linebackers, not runners. And I think about this moment because my father was not the cocky young naval officer at that point. He was an old man who was revisiting moments in his life when he wished he had made different choices. And he chose to stay and he chose to come in and cross that threshold, not knowing what that might look like. For all the things that my father didn't give me in childhood, he gave me an offering in that moment that is found and that has stayed with me as something I want to offer my own children. You've got to be willing to step over the threshold, not knowing where your feet will land in faith that there is a relationship to build and it's worth having. Mm. And I love him for that. Just to shorten the story, three months after that first encounter, uh, my parents who were giddy that night, they were, they were like a couple of school kids, both widowers at that point. You could tell it was awkward for the rest of us because they were quite enamored with each other. I had a hard time focusing on the rest of us. <laughs> uh, they were married three months after that initial meeting. Oh. And he and my mom lived with us until he died in 2014. Very cool thing. Here's the closing piece I want you to know about that. In all the years, I had him for 10 years of my life before he passed, and I was grateful for that. We had hard conversations about all the hurts that had transpired because of his absence in my life. One of the things that he felt particularly guilty about is that he had been very wealthy at one point in his life. By the time he arrived at my doorstep, all of that was gone. (laughs) He didn't have any of that. And he wondered if I felt sad that he hadn't had anything to give me monetarily or in wealth. I remember saying to him, the only thing you have that I want is your time. So are you willing to give that to me? So here's the thing about parenting that I pull out of that story that's so profoundly important for me. Mortal time is like currency. It's the currency of eternity. It's like money. We only get so much of it. Once it's spent, it's gone. We can't earn anymore. I was grateful. My father was willing to trade those mortal minutes of his life, that currency of time. He was willing to spend it on me. That's become a great gift that I got from my dad. Wow. I was worthy of that. Every child needs a person in their life who is willing to spend their mortal minutes offering that time because they're worthy. I love that. 
I'm going to take you to probably the hardest thing I can imagine a parent would ever have to endure. You adopted a son whose name is Kareem and you lost him. Can you tell that story? Yes. And I draw a deep breath because in my heart, I'm asking him to be close by that I might say the things that he would say if his voice was heard here today. And I hope I can speak on his behalf and speak his truth as well as my own. Kareem was one of four children. His two elder siblings, sisters, were adopted by another family. Uh, His youngest sister was adopted by a biological family member. Kareem was in foster care and endured 13 placements before arriving at our home at age seven. That was attributed to what was considered behavioral challenges that Kareem had. We adopted Kareem the Christmas after his adoption was finalized. Kareem experienced a grand mal seizure in our living room, and we rushed him to the local children's hospital. And there we're told that Kareem had a brain tumor that was 66 cubic centimeters, which is roughly the size of an adult fist that was located in the right temporal lobe of his brain. This is important because much of what was attributed to Kareem as behavioral issues, we now understand was pathology. What was happening to him physiologically because there was a tumor growing in his brain and creating pressure there. He wasn't ignoring people. He was having absentee seizures. He wasn't banging his head because it was a behavioral issue or a self-comforting issue even. It was an effort to relieve pressure in that cranium. He really got a very rough and difficult start in life. They resected that brain tumor. It was not cancerous, but it left Kareem with some significant disabilities. He had visual field cuts similar to dyslexia, but not quite the same. When Kareem would look at written text, he would not see them in a way that he could assign phenomes or sounds to them. It was fascinating to watch him because he could write an entire page of a story and read it to you, what he had written. He could come back two weeks later and read the exact same thing to you, but nothing that you looked at on that page could be interpreted as legible or readable by anybody else. His brain learned to accommodate and help him move through life, and he had some tremendous gifts. Kareem was that child who was so motivated to do things well. He was a hard worker. He loved being the first one in and the last one out. He loved being the one who did it the best. He liked to work harder than everyone. He loved to brag about how his were better. If he mowed the lawn, his was always straighter and more appropriately mowed than anybody else. But we loved that about him. Tenacious. Impossible to slow him down, even with his disabilities. But Kareem was also an African-American child living in a predominantly white community with white parents and a lot of white siblings and white schoolmates. Although our experiences are different, I have some empathy, some lens, some point of reference for the fact that although Kareem was loved, just like I was loved as a child, there were big gaping pieces missing in his life. Those empty places in Kareem's life caused some challenges for him as he transitioned into adulthood. And one of the challenges that he had is that he had fathered a child unexpectedly, and there was great debate and consternation between, a lot of hostility between the mom and him. Kareem was in a custody hearing regarding his child that didn't go well. This would have been four years ago on Good Friday. Well, it was the week of Easter, so it would have been Thursday of that week. 
he was in a custody hearing. It didn't go well. We couldn't make contact with him after that hearing, and we were very concerned. And we spent a day looking everywhere we could think of. The evening of Good Friday, we got a phone call that he was at our church. Some folks from church had pulled in. They had a basketball game planned for that Friday night. Graham often would go and play basketball at the church. They saw the car and they knew we were looking for him. So they called us. And they said, hey, he's here. He's great. It's okay. We'll have him call you. And a few minutes later, we received a call that there was an emergency and we needed to come to the church. Kareem had taken his life in the car that day. There's a lot of that story to tell. I don't know. It is a story I could tell the life lessons for in this venue and in this brief time. But I want to say for him and for myself, while I would have never chosen this path for my son, I have continued to grow in my relationship with him, even in his absence. I've learned things. I've learned things about the way I parented. I've learned things about the way I held expectations for him that I didn't even recognize that I was holding and how they may have impacted an instant. I think he's continuing to teach me even in his absence. And I love him for that. That's beautiful. You've found a way to stay in contact and to continue learning, even though he's not physically there. It sounds like he's spiritually with you all the time. I certainly feel that way. Can I add the little boy that was in the custody dispute? His son has now been adopted by one of our other children and his wife, and that child's half-siblings also have been adopted. What's interesting for me, they live close by, and I have occasion to see this little boy quite often. He is the same age as Kareem was when he came to us. He is Kareem's doppelganger. He looks like him. He sounds like him. He walks into a room with heavy, lumbering feet like his dad did. Everything about him makes you feel like his father's present. It's been a wonderful journey for me with this little boy to have conversations about, this is how I would have handled it when Kareem was here. When Kareem was this little, this is where my head likely was and what I knew to do then. And I find myself saying, maybe I could do that differently. Wow. It's the gift of the do-over you never knew you'd have. Wow. You're incredibly strong. I don't know how parents handle that kind of grief and loss. It's not the way it's supposed to be, right? We're supposed to grow old and die before our children do. And when it doesn't work that way, there's something that seems very unjust about that. Can I add a thought about that? I think one of the big lessons I've learned in parenting is that there is no way it's supposed to be. We go to the beach as a family, and I've learned a lot from the beach. And when you stand in the tide, and the tide comes in over you, it can make you feel off your feet. And when the tide water goes back out, you feel those little grains of sand going with the tide, and you can feel like you're sinking in it. Parenting is sort of like that. It's fluid. It's moving. It is sometimes dangerous and overwhelming and can knock you flat on your ass. It's also beautiful and breathtaking. So the objective here is not for it to be picture perfect, but to stay on your feet and enjoy the view. And when you get knocked on your ass to get back up again, because that will happen too. Exactly right. Exactly right. Sometimes there's great mercy and kindness in the moment you spend crawling back up, isn't there? We have a son who has had a significant challenge with mental health. He has a diagnosis of schizophrenia. He has auditory hallucinations and lives in a different reality much of the time. And I've got to tell you, I want to be like Bryce when I grow up. 
He is resilient in a way that I have yet to learn. He just keeps trying. And I have learned to change my hopes. That question about what is it you want? Parenting is so much easier when you learn to say, what is it that can happen that I haven't seen yet? I'm very grateful that I haven't been able to get most of what I've wanted throughout the course of my life, or my life would have been very small. Regina Fike, I would really like to thank you immensely for sharing these deeply personal memories, hopes, dreams, lessons as a parent, not only of your own children, but of the children that desperately need parenting. And you do it for all the right reasons. I thank God for you, and I wish for many more people like you who will be able to help the youth who lost the lottery when they got their biological parents sometimes, and maybe they can find their way home, like you said in the beginning of this, to parents like you. Thank you so much for sharing. I love you, Kim. My relationship with you has created quite a change in the trajectory of where my life has gone, and uh, I'm grateful for you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Dr. Cheryl Woodson about children with aging parents. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.